Hey everybody, welcome to episode 3 of season 2 of The Narrative. Constanza Reader is the founder and CEO of Hearts Need Art, creative support for patients and caregivers, and host of the podcast Arts for the Health of It. As a singer, adolescent leukemia survivor, speaker, and thought leader in the field of arts and health, Constanza is on a mission to humanize healthcare through the arts. Constanza was the recipient of the 2018 Grace Ann Durr Humanitarian Award and was selected as one of the top 100 healthcare visionaries by the International Forum on Advancements in Healthcare for 2021. Her work has been featured in various publications such as Thrive Global, Authority Magazine, Ticker News, the National Association of Teachers of Singing, and the cover of MD News Magazine. Constanza has a powerful, touching story and I think you'll enjoy meeting her. Hi, Costanza. Welcome to the Narrative Podcast. Really appreciate you joining me today. Thanks for having me. I love the whole premise of this podcast, and I'm, I'm happy to be here. I'd love for you to share with my listeners your mission and what you're doing with Hearts Need Arts and the whole background there, and then we'll pivot back to how you got there. Okay. Um, yeah, so I'm the founder and CEO of Hearts Need Art, creative support for patients and caregivers. And our artists, musicians, writers um, go into healthcare spaces to work with patients and caregivers to ensure really that no one suffers alone when they're dealing with um, a life-altering health challenge. Um, so we do that through bedside music concerts and bedside art activities, um, bedside, uh, those art activities often turn into like window painting, painting the windows of our patients so that, um, like real quick story. I'll just, I'll add some stories as we go along. <laughs> um, there was a patient recently who was just diagnosed and, um, our artist Hannah went in to work with her and her husband was there and they were talking, getting to know each other. And they told Hannah that, Hey, we were actually supposed to be on this um, Caribbean vacation. Like right now we were supposed to be on a beach, but instead we're here in this hospital. And so Hannah painted a tropical beach scene for them on their window in her hospital room where she's going to be for several weeks while she starts her treatment. Um, and, you know, the arts have that ability to, to take us out and, um, give us, um, well, we, we can get all into that, but anyway, I just, I just love that story. I think mm -hmm. it's really cool. Uh, and then of course, bedside writing as well to help people tell their stories. Um, and the whole goal isn't to produce really wonderful pieces of art, but to, invite people into the process of expressing themselves creatively, which in itself is beneficial. It is healing. Um, engaging in the arts reduces pain levels and anxiety and depressive symptoms. It's a catalyst for human connection. It reduces um, loneliness. These are all things that are detrimental to our health and negatively impact patient outcomes. But so often they 
those issues go unaddressed in healthcare spaces, especially with adult patients. There's a lot more resources for pediatric patients, but we specifically work with adults. Um, we work with some um, teens as well, but mostly adult patients um, to provide this type of, of support. It's interesting. I have a, uh, a friend who a few years ago, unfortunately lost his six-year-old son to mm-hmm. pediatric brain cancer. And he started his own foundation, you know, obviously a devastating thing for any parent to go to. And he started his own foundation and did a bunch of things, does a bunch of things to raise money for pediatric cancer research. And part of it was the, I, what I found out was how little funding there is for pediatric cancer research as a comparison to other things. Mm-hmm. But as you're saying with the, the resources, he, part of their mm-hmm. foundation actually started a group. Their, their foundation is called the Pavlov Foundation, and they're, they started a group that's called Pavlov Shutterbugs, which is equipping the kids with cameras mm, so that they awesome. could express their art. They could develop, you know, they could photograph their surroundings, they could do whatever, and kind of teach them how to express things visually that mm. are probably meaningful to them, you know, so that you'll see pictures out of a hospital room. But you'll mm. see a picture in a park, you'll see a p- picture at a beach, and it's just interesting. But it's interesting to hear you say that there's resources, because it's almost the reverse. There's resources it like is. that for kids, but there's not a lot it of funding, is. but there's art, no art right. resources for adults. It's there, Yeah, there is this imbalance where there's a lot more research being done with um, on adults, which some of that is just because it's, there's a lot more hurdles to go through to enroll children in, um, medical trials and for good reason, Mm because they're a vulnerable population and there's specific, um, structures in place to protect them. Um, there's structures in place to protect adults as well, but yes, there's a larger number of adult patients that are enrolled in clinical trials. There's also a larger number of adults that have cancer, but the vast majority of supportive resources go to support this small number of pediatric patients. And is it okay if I start weaving in my story? Absolutely. (laughs) So, um, I'm a, I'm a adolescent leukemia survivor and there was so much, there were so many organizations and people that wanted to like do stuff for me and give me stuff and, and do things that it was kind of overwhelming (laughs) and wonder, like so grateful. Right. (laughs) But also, um, was a little bit overwhelming. Um, cause I think sometimes (sighs) giving is this, um, service is kind of this two edged sword. We generally all get there because we're, we have discovered some sort of need in our own lives, um, that we want to close the gap for. Um, and, so sometimes, but sometimes people stay in that area where they kind of have, we kind of get our ego wrapped around giving where I need to give this to you to fill this void in myself. And sometimes that stops us from asking the question, am I really helping? Am I really addressing a problem that really needs to be addressed? Am I really utilizing resources, um, in an impactful way? Um, and I've, felt as a receipt on the receiving end of that, it feels kind of icky because you can kind of sense that you're not really here for me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you're here because you need to, you need me to perform for you and, and say like, Oh yeah, thank you so much. Oh my gosh. Like anyway. So I experienced that as a pediatric leukemia patient. Um, and 
going back a little bit, I, uh, I grew up in Santa Cruz, California. I'm the oldest of five kids. Um, I was homeschooled for most of my, um, uh, school years. And then when I was 13, I was diagnosed with leukemia. Um, I went through 130 weeks of chemo and I've been cancer-free since 2002. Wow. So congratulations. Almost, so nine years, actually my nine year end of treatment anniversary is, Oh, I just had it. And I didn't like do anything for it. That's a good sign <laughs> though, right? Really busy. Th- that, that, that's, that's a good I know, sign, that's, right? That's it. Yeah. That it's not so prominent in my mind anymore. I mean, 19 years, like, I think anyway, anyway, so, um, went through treatments. I went on to study music and psychology in college and met my husband. He was in the Navy. He got stationed in San Antonio, Texas, where we are now. And after we got married, I moved here and I wanted to do something to kind of give back to the cancer community. And I found out that we have one of the largest inpatient oncology units in all of South Texas and really this whole region. And I was like, great, that sounds like a great place to start. So I started volunteering and I had never been in an adult hospital before, much less than an adult oncology unit. And I was like, Hmm, this is a little bit different than what I'm used to. (laughs) It was bare and there were no activities and there were very few Uh, Like there was always, when I was in the hospital, there were always people coming in and out of my room trying to cheer me up and give me things. And like, which again is great because we, it's really important that people don't um, suffer alone. And yet so many of these patients were suffering alone. And so many of these patients had family members that lived hours away that could not afford to take a day off work in order to come and stay with their loved one. They had to keep working in order to pay for the medical bills in order to keep the medical insurance. And so a lot of these patients weren't much older than I was when I finished treatment and it was, I'll use the word horrific. It is inhumane what we do to, to patients. Um, there was a study a while back about Uh, where they took a group of rats and they injected them all with, with cancer, which thank you rats for your sacrifice for science. (laughs) Um, but they split them into two groups and in one group, they put rats in individual cages by themselves. And in the other group, they kept them in kind of a communal rat wonderland. Mm -hmm. Um, and they measured tumor growth, tumor growth over time and the rats that were isolated their cancer grew at a significantly higher rate than those that were in community. Interesting. And what do our hospitals look like? They look like these little boxes that we put people in. Um, and when we don't address the whole person, uh, medical outcomes aren't as good. Um, the, their patients aren't as compliant with, with their, um, healthcare providers because they're, scared and they're lonely and they can't make as good decisions for their health. Um, so I saw all of this and I knew that it didn't have to look this way. And I did the only thing I knew how to do, which was sing. And that always helped me when I was in the hospital. And so I started just going room to room and singing for patients. Um, and it was incredible to see the transformation that happened just by providing this small gift of 
beauty mm-hmm. and human connection. Um, cause that's really what the arts are. They're a short, they're a catalyst for human connection. They help us connect in a deep way with ourselves, with others, with our creator. That's how the arts have been used across, across time. Um, and it was so impactful. And, um, since this was a storytelling podcast, I'll tell you the story that really kind of, um, the inciting incident for me to start my organization, one of the patients I was working with, um, her name was Gracie and she was, um, a young adult, um, patient, um, young adult or the AYA, the adolescent and young adult population is actually one of the most at-risk demographics in cancer right now. And it's 15 to 39 year olds. Um, we were talking about the rate of enrollment in clinical trials. The, this group has the lowest representation of, um, in clinical trials. So their prognoses aren't as good. Um, and their cancers behave differently and, and it's a complicated time of life to have cancer. Um, so anyway, I met Gracie, I think the day after she was diagnosed. And when I went in her room, she was sitting on her bed, just huddled up in a ball, just really flat affect wasn't like barely looked up when I came in and I went in and I introduced myself and I said, Hey, would you like to hear some music today? And she said, no, I'm not really an artsy person. I don't really listen to music even. And I was like, okay, that's fine. Like I'll be here next week. If you want it, then great. But as I was leaving, she stopped me and she's like, well, actually, I think if you know a Christian song, I might like to hear that right now. And so I sang, um, his eye is on the sparrow and I know he watches me. His eye is on the sparrow and I know he watches me. And as I sing through the verses of the song, this like calm came over the room and I watched the tension slowly release from her body and tears come to her eyes. And when I finished, she looked up and just said, thank you. And that was it. Um, and I got to work with Gracie a lot because she lived in the hospital with us for about six months while she was in treatment, the way her, her, (laughs) insurance was if they discharged her, her insurance wouldn't let her be readmitted. So she had to stay in the hospital for the entire length of her treatment while her family was far away. Um, and so she was alone a lot in the hospital, but her, I know <laughs> it's awful, right? And, Absolutely. Um, I, so, but her favorite day was Wednesday. Cause I would come and sing for her. And we had a group for young adults where we'd get together and share stories and music together. Um, and it was really wonderful. Uh, but finally she went to remission and she got to go home and we were really excited for her. Um, but her cancer came back just a few months later. She had a fairly aggressive form of, of leukemia. And, um, so she was back in the hospital. As soon as I found out she was there, I rushed to her room and, uh, and expecting devastation. Cause this is like the worst nightmare for a cancer survivor. Is it coming back? Yeah. But this time I found her sitting on her bed smiling and she's like, oh my gosh, Stancy, I'm so glad you're here. I have, I want to show you something. And she pulled me over to her bed and she rolled up her sleeve and there on her arm was 
a brand new tattoo that she had designed herself of a sparrow. And she said, I'll never forget that first song you sang for me. And I know now that no matter what happens, he is watching over me. Wow. Right. So I cried for like three days. <laughs> like you do. Like, yeah. how, what do you say to that? <laughs> um, and that's, and I want to say like, that's not a testament to like, oh my gosh, I'm so amazing. Like she got a tattoo of the song. Like that's a testament to the, the divine, holy love that moves through us when we show up in hard spaces for people. I didn't do anything especially spectacular. I just showed up for her in that space. But going back to the point that you made early on, you know, you came in with a heart to help her as opposed to just showing up to perform. Mm. You were trying, you're right. I mean, so she, and I think that that resonated to her that you weren't, and who knows who else might've showed up at some point prior and came in to perform for her. And Mm. she intuitively read that, but you came in and didn't do that. You said, if you don't want to hear me sing, I'll leave. Yeah. She said, sing something for me. So it's an important, I'll get to that in a second about like kind of how we train our artists for this work. Cause it's, it's different than you might think. Um, but yeah, that, that floored me of course. And unfortunately they, we weren't able to get Gracie back into remission, but before she went home on hospice, she called me in her room again and she like grabbed my face and she was like, we need more art and music and writing. And we need more reasons to get out of our rooms and out of our isolation because we need to remember the reasons why we are alive as much as we need the things that are keeping us alive. She made it very clear that while she appreciated that I was there once a week, that it was not enough. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And that she, she knew that there were thousands of patients that were going to come after her that needed more of this. And how do you argue with that? <laughs> I figured out how to start a nonprofit because <laughs> I didn't know how to do art and music and I didn't have time and space to do all those things. So, um, I, that's when I started my nonprofit in 2016. And now because of Gracie's call to action, thousands and thousands of people have been impacted by the arts, by this, this woman who did, wasn't really artistic didn't really think of herself as an artist or didn't really even listen to music that it, it changed her that profoundly. Um, and now has gone on to change thousands of lives. That's an amazing story. I, um, I have a son who's now 28 and when he was 11, uh, we found out that he had a brain tumor. Um, and you know, it all turned out great. It turned out that he, it was cystic. It wasn't cancerous. Mm. They didn't know that until he went into neurosurgery two days later, oh a day later, and, and had it taken out. And they were doing pathology in the operating room and running out and telling mm-hmm. us. And and he was living in Tennessee, and I had just moved to Georgia. And just that it was 225 miles, and he was in the hospital for a couple of weeks. That mm-hmm. distance was so hard as a parent, even knowing that his outcome was a good outcome. He didn't have anything. There was nothing malignant about mm-hmm. what he had. It was just recovering from surgery. And, and then I experienced with my dad, my dad, I grew up in California, not far from where you grew up. My dad had, had, um, he had a couple different forms of cancer and unfortunately Mm -hmm. passed away a few years ago, but he Mm -hmm. was in Southern California. I was out here. I live in Atlanta. So I was in Atlanta. And so, Mm -hmm. and he was, my mom was gone. 
it was just him and I couldn't be there. And he, you know, he would, he wouldn't even tell me sometimes when he was in the hospital because he didn't mm-hmm. want to bother me. He didn't want, you know, he didn't want me to worry. You have your own life to live. I don't want you to worry. But I think now as I'm hearing you describe it, I'm just, it, it hurts to imagine that him sitting in this very clinical <sighs> area by himself, because I was the only real family close by, as he was suffering like this without anybody mm-hmm. really providing him joy or insight other than what he would see on television. And mm-hmm. it's such an amazing thing to think that you're able to fill that void for mm-hmm. people. Um, well, and you hit, on, you hit on something really important that, you know, a lot of times the focus is very much on the patient, but cancer illness, it affects the whole system. It affects the professional caregivers. It affects the family members, siblings, you know, uncles, aunts, you know, whoever is connected to that person is affected. And what we hear a lot. So all, so all of anyone that's in the hospital has access to our programs, no matter who they are, um, where they are in that triad. Um, but what we hear a lot from our family caregivers is how relieved that they felt that when they couldn't be there or when they were burned out and had nothing else to give or no other energy to entertain or make lift their spirits. Like they just were dry that our artists were there to help to fill in that gap. Like you said. Yeah. Yeah. That's, I mean, I, luckily we had a a close friend of my dad's who my wife and I are still good friends with who lived nearby and she would go and visit him and not even, not just when he was in the hospital, she helped take care of him for many years Mm. at his home. But you know, like it was so difficult being away, being remote from that whole thing. And I was worried about him but I was also dealing with the emotions of it myself. And it was, it's, you know, I, I just can't imagine that with something in a more severe way or a girl like that. And then I'm thinking as you're talking about it, I'm thinking about how's it been the last couple of years when like you couldn't, like you couldn't even go in the hospital to a certain degree. Right. And I mean, it's gotta, be, I, I mean, I've counted my lucky stars that I haven't had anybody in a hospital during this pandemic. My mother-in-law fell and broke her hip at the beginning of the pandemic in and she was in a nursing home where actually was one of the first places, a rehab facility after she broke her hip, one of the first places that, that got hit with a wave of COVID in February of 2020. Luckily she was fine, but you know, we were isolated from her. My wife couldn't go see her. Her brother couldn't go see her. And I just think that what you're describing then added on to this pandemic and the fear and the isolation had to be even worse. Yes. Yeah. It was pretty, pretty awful. Um, we kept in contact. So we, we were, our program was suspended along with everyone else's programs in March of 2020 and, uh, couldn't go in at all. Well, I take the back. We were able to go with special, special permission. We were able to go in near some of the staff entrances and we painted murals for the staff, um, during the beginning of COVID to kind of boost morale, but we couldn't, you know, be on any patient units. Um, (sighs) patients couldn't leave their rooms, no visitors, zero staffing was low because they were being pulled in all different directions. It was, it was awful. And there's some, there's some patients that, um, we worked with before that were in the hospital all the way through that just described how, how horrible it was. And it's interesting now, you know, at the beginning, like we didn't know what we were dealing with. We didn't know how to treat it. Like it just was a mess. So 
you know, drastic called for drastic measures. But when I talk with hospital administrators now, they, they're like, "Mm, we're not going to go back to that ever. (laughs) Like it's too, it has too much of a high cost on, on, on patient outcomes, actually, ironically that, you know, in trying to protect them, um, we, we worsened their outcomes in a lot of ways. Um, uh, so that like broke our heart through the whole pandemic, but we, we, um, in two weeks we had redesigned all of our programs to be virtual. So, um, everything was on our website. So anyone that could get to our website could, um, schedule appointments directly with our musicians, with a writer, with, with, a with an artist and work with the, with them through zoom. And that allowed us to support people all over the country that were isolated. It was mostly patients that were at home that weren't really, that weren't in hospitals. Cause mm-hmm. most of the patients that are in hospitals really feel crappy and they're not like, it's why we like walk in their rooms yeah. because they don't have the bandwidth to, or the energy to go on a website and sign up for time. Like you, they could only do that if they had help. Um, and then we, we supported different, we provided artists for different support groups around the country that were virtual, that were struggling with maintaining engagement because people were dealing with zoom fatigue in a really serious way, but they really needed community because that, that, that support group was their lifeline. And so they bring us into, um, to bring some fun and joy and something new to re-engage people. Um, we also started a podcast <laughs> during this time to help elevate some of the amazing stories and research that's being done in the field of arts and health. You know, we're not the only group that does this type of work. There's lots of groups around the country that do, um, that are doing oh, such beautiful, amazing work. Um, but yeah, we were out of the hospital for 14 months. Yeah, about 13 and a half, 14 months. Um, but we were able to go back in earlier this year. And it's been this explosion of of growth because there's a, this explosion of need. I mean, the need was always there, but I think people are like more aware of the need because we all collectively have experienced what yeah. it's like to be stuck in a box by yourself for long periods of time. And the burden, the anxiety, the depression, the the toll that that takes on our mental, physical, emotional health. Um, and so they're like, oh yeah, this sucks. So <laughs> Yeah, I would more. imagine if nothing else, people became more empowered to just say that it sucks, right? I mean, like everybody yeah. experienced it. And so everyone can relate to it. We're not all yeah. going through a cancer diagnosis or in the hospital, but at least everybody has a sense now of what it means to be isolated, to not be able to see your family and your friends and get that that human interaction that we all live for. Yep. And not have access to the arts either. Yeah. No concerts, no um, no theater, no, you know, dance halls, no, you know, any of those things that we use to connect with each other. Um, none of that. Yeah. It's weird. I, 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 um, we've recently gone to two concerts, the first two since post pandemic, I wouldn't even tell what she shouldn't use the term post pandemic, but (laughs) since lockdowns and things, and they were both outdoor concerts in an amphitheater and they required COVID vaccination to even get in probably as safe an environment as you're going to possibly be in. And I have now developed me who I've, I've like nothing, knock on wood, nothing wrong with me health wise, other than just, you know, age related degradations of my health. (laughs) 
I've developed social anxiety. Like I'm uncomfortable yeah. being there. I'm like, I get there and I'm, I look at everybody like, is that the guy that's going to cough on me? Is that the guy? That, <laughs> and it's like, I don't want to be that person. Oh. And it's like, and I sit there and go, I'm, you know, I don't think I really have any mental health issues, but man, it did affect me in that way. I can't imagine dealing with then a debilitating disease diagnosis at the same time, how hard that would have to be. It's just, it's staggering to me to think that way. Yeah. My mom was diagnosed with breast cancer last year in the middle of all of this. Um, that was fun. Yeah, I'm sure. <laughs> it was, it was also really interesting, really experiencing cancer from the perspective of a family member, a family caregiver. Um, and it gave me a whole other level of appreciation for what we do, because I know like all, you know, all the, like, you know, how to be empathetic and hold space for people when they're, when they're suffering and to, um, you know, I know all like the quote, right things to do, but man, when it's your, when it's your mom, when it's your loved one, you're dealing with your own crap too. Yeah. And I felt that like, I need her to feel better so that I don't feel as crappy. And that made me real, like I said, really, um, a new level of appreciation for what we do, because I think sometimes when we go in as strangers, like there's kind of this clean slate, I don't have any agenda for you. I don't need you to be happy or sad for me. I I'm just here to hold space for you where you are like the, how important community is around people that are dealing with serious illness. I think sometimes people are scared when someone in their community is diagnosed with a serious illness, because they're afraid of saying the wrong thing, or I, that's uncomfortable, or what if I do something stupid, like whatever. And so they don't show up. And we need to show up for people and families when they're going through this, because there's some, sometimes a role that you can play as a friend, as a community member that is might not be immediately accessible for someone that's really close to them. Um, and same thing, people that are really close to that person, they, they can show up for, for, um, a patient in a way that no one else can. So everyone plays a role. Um, and we just need to have, first, I think we need to educate people better about suffering and about how to hold place for suffering, the inevitability of suffering. Like we're all going to die. Like this is just a thing that, but we pretend it doesn't exist. And then when it happens, we're like shocked it's like, well, we've really failed you. Society has really failed you. If, if when bad things happen, it shocks us. Like what in the world has, has made you think that, that, nothing bad can ever happen. You're the invincible one. You're the, you're the one. And I think we're, we have this privilege in our, you know, in middle-class America of kind of being insulated from, from suffering. And so that when it does happen, we're completely ill-equipped. And I think we have a lot to learn from um, people of color that are constantly in states of dealing with oppression and suffering Um, people in, in, um, different, uh, patient populations and survivors of, of illness, of horrific things. I think we have a lot to learn from, from them, um, so that we're more prepared, um, to face hard things that will inevitably happen in our lives. Going back to something you talked about earlier with the example of Gracie, 
and I'm sure this is probably not the only one, or I guess it's not the only one. How difficult is it to deal with that patient when, when they, Mm. when they say their goodbye, when they're, when you know, you've helped and you know, you've, you've been there for them, but then there's that moment when she's going to hospice and she's not coming back. And that's gotta be a really hard thing in terms of dealing with grief because you've invested time in a relationship and it was a relationship, but that's gotta be a very difficult thing to deal with. Yeah. And yeah, where to start to answer this question? <laughs> so many layers. This. Um, well, first off, we work with other patient populations besides cancer, but with our cancer populations, um, that patients that are in, let me back up. Most cancer is treated outpatient. Now you go in and out of a clinic to receive infusions. Mostly you're at home. So patients that are admitted to the hospital are either dealing with a complication with severe side effects, with, um, uh, metastatic disease, with, um, more serious, uh, diagnoses. Um, so there's about a 70% mortality rate on our oncology units. So 70% of the patients that we work with eventually die from their cancers. And that's incredibly challenging. Yeah. I can't imagine a lot of the focus of the training that we do with our artists is how do you live in this, in this space, um, without it destroying you and, and being t- like flooding out and being toxic in your personal life. Um, cause that's a skill. That's a skill to, that you have to learn. Um, and the first like eight months that I was doing this work regularly, I pretty much cried every day, whether I was in the hospital or not. Like there was just this, and some of that was, it, there was connections to my own trauma mm-hmm. that I was having to face every time I went in. Like sometimes I would call my mom on my way into the hospital, like on the edge of a panic attack, like trying to like <laughs> help let her breathe with me and maybe sing a song together or something to help me regulate my nervous system so that I could, so I can be present when I do go in and work with patients and I'm not bringing my own junk with me, Mm -hmm. but then also having to learn how to leave it at the door. So it's this combination of constantly having to deal with your own crap, like constantly having, because it brings up stuff that's in you that, that is triggered by that environment. So, um, I, (laughs) through many years of counseling, uh, to, to work through some of my own trauma so that, um, I could go into that space without having a panic attack. It doesn't make it easy, but yeah. it makes it doable. Um, but it's this, it's this a double-edged sword again. It's this paradox where it's the most, it's the hardest work. And it's also the most beautiful work. I mean, the, the sacredness of walking that thin space with people when they're asking questions, dealing with questions of their mortality Mm -hmm. and of their faith and belief of love and family. Um, we're really all the, can I use profanity on here? (laughs) We're all the bullshit is just stripped away. You know, I, I like to say that like bullshit dies a, a quick 
painful death on the oncology unit. Yeah. Cause it just, it just strips it away to your, to like, what is the raw core, um, essence of being alive and being human. Yeah. And when it's all stripped away, the thing that I found that, you know, I've seen such deep pain and I've experienced so much loss. I've known hundreds and hundreds of, of people in my life that have died. I've seen the depths of pain. And what I've found is that love runs even deeper, that love is deeper than even the deepest sorrow. And that's a gift that you wouldn't necessarily understand and internalize on such a deep level unless you see it. Yeah. Unless you see it with all everything stripped away and at the core, at the bare bones, we're here to love. Yeah. That's what we're designed for. We're we're here to, you know, learn to love ourselves, others, and our creator. Like that's how we, that's how we live in 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 freedom and in and in harmony with with our world. Um, and it's, but unfortunately we're very much attached to, to, and, and not un and with understandably very attached to things in our world that maybe don't matter as much. And when they're stripped away, it's incredibly painful. So going in to a hospital and forming a relationship, forming relationships with people that, you know, are probably going to die. Um, it takes courage every time it takes courage to step in and say, I'm, it is worth the risk to enter into alongside this person and walk with them wherever their journey may take them, that it's worth the risk because love is worth the risk. So you obviously are a singer and your voice was beautiful when you sang earlier here, are you doing the charity work or the, the, the hearts need arts work full-time is it part-time are you do you have a singing and music career that goes in parallel to this yeah so um so after college I spent many years um singing professionally and I did musical theater and a little bit of opera and um some solo work and recorded a couple things like recording was never like really my favorite thing I love live music um uh, so I did that for many years. And in the early days of when I, it was just me kind of going to the hospital, I would bring like castmates from shows I was in mm-hmm. or bandmates or whatever. And we would, um, do little vignettes on the, on Let's the put on a show. Unit. Yeah, we would put on a show. We put on, ta- we put on chairs in the hallway and we call them corridor concerts. We yeah. still do, um, a hard scene art. Um, but yeah, so I was for many years, I was doing it um, kind of at the same time, I'm also a voice teacher and I have been for many years. And that's kind of my first love. I love, I love helping kids discover their voices. It's such a profoundly spiritually transformative experience when it happens, when you free someone's voice from, from the stress and the trauma and the the pain that we so much so often holds in our voices. And then when it get when it's freed and they, they figure out how to use their voice and express themselves through music, it's, it's, Oh, I love it. I love it. I still do it. So I still teach. Um, but 
as I was working in the hospital, I just felt more and more called, like, this is where I'm supposed to be. And, um, it just was my favorite place to sing. Like it made every other performance I did seem gray. Like it was like being in the, seeing in the hospital was like technicolor and everywhere else was gray. And that was, <laughs> that was a cue for me. So I really like only sing in the hospital now. Well, I, I take it back. I, I'm wearing a scarf today because I am singing at an event tonight and it was either curlers or the <laughs> scarf that you were going to see. So, <laughs> um, went with the scarf. Um, so it's just here and there that I, I perform in public, but, um, but yeah, I singing in the hospital and it challenged me as a musician in kind of surprising ways. Um, I was classically trained and like I said, did a lot of musical theater, sang a lot in church growing up. So that was more kind of what I had in my repertoire, but that's not necessarily, that's not necessarily music that connects with everyone. Like people have different musical tastes. So I had to retrain my voice to learn how to sing, um, different styles of music. I had to learn different styles of music. I don't necessarily do them like amazingly, but (laughs) I know enough to kind of get by, um, so that I could respond to requests from patients. Like what kind of music connects with you? Because the music that, so patient preferred music is kind of the term in this, in this, um, field. It, it has a different effect than listening to unfamiliar music and there's benefits to both, but they're different. Um, but the sense of kind of comfort and, um, connection and that sense of feeling seen and heard really comes from someone standing in front of you and singing, one of your favorite songs. Yeah. You know, there's a, there's a quote by Arna Garberg. Um, he's an author and he says that, um, to love a person is to learn the song that is in their heart and to sing it to them when they have forgotten. That's what we get to do. Wow. I'm going to have to take that one to heart. My wife and I have vastly different taste in music in a lot of ways. And so like, she'll say, oh, these are my favorite singers. I'm like, I don't even know who they are. So it's like, <laughs> I'm going to have to figure out. And I'm gonna have you better to be- learn. And, and I'm the world's worst singer. So me learning them and then singing them would not be a good I mean, thing either. I think it's metaphorical, Dang. but okay. with us, it's like literal. So. Better, better. <laughs> <laughs> I'll just, I'll, I'll, hit play, I'll hit play on, on my, on my iPhone and just and stream it to her. It'll be fine. Perfect. At the end of every podcast, what I'm trying to do is ask people some probing questions a little bit to just learn about them separately. So first one I want to ask you is what's your proudest moment? Oh my gosh. You just got to spring that question. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Let me just throw Mm, it out there. My proudest moment. Um, Hmm. My proudest moment is also kind of tied up with um, kind of one of my most shameful moment moments. Um, it's going to get kind of deep. Are we, are we good? Yeah, to, that's I mean, fine. <laughs> Actually, my second question was, what's your biggest regret? So maybe this is one answer to both those questions. We'll see. Yeah. Um, so when I was dealing, when I, um, like I said, when I was going through it was just myself and I was going to the hospital and it was triggering all that trauma. I, um, during that period, my husband went on a deployment or I had, I had, a, I had a health challenge and what that landed me with surgery in the hospital. And then soon after that, my husband went on deployment. So I was alone and I had been through this medical 
thing that had triggered like everything. So everything was bubbling up to the surface. And I, I had a complete mental breakdown and I was like, my body shut down. I couldn't do anything. Like my body was like, and you know, you're going to deal with all the stuff that you've ignored for all of these years, 10 years later, it's, and that's actually a common experience for survivors that around that ten, seven to 10 year point, there's often a resurgence, like a reemergence of this past trauma that says like, okay, now you get to deal with me. Remember me. And <laughs> right. <laughs> and so I found a really good psychologist and we were going through all the things and, um, God really speaks to me in, in metaphor and in, um, through images and, um, little visions and things. And, um, at one point in the therapy, we were kind of starting trying to get to the root of things. Cause it's not, when you're dealing with trauma, it's not just like the big tree T trauma. It's also like little T trauma and like childhood stuff, like all the things, like it's all connected. Right. And I, um, this image that I had in my head was I was this little girl in a shack in the woods that I, in the, a shack that I'd kind of built myself in lean twos. And it's where all the things about myself that I felt were most shameful and unacceptable. Um, that's where I put all of those things. And in my in my vision, um, Jesus came and knocked on the door and asked to come in. And that was one of the most, like that sense of shame and fear. He was like right on it. And I think my proudest moment was when I said, yes, you can come in. And he just came in and sat with me looked around. We dealt with all the things in the room. And then he led me out and took me to his mansion, to my new room, um, that he had built for me. And I think I, I say that's my proudest moment because I think our proudest moments come when we say yes to doing something hard. Um, and that was probably one of my harder moments. Um, and I'm grateful I said yes. So going back to the other question, any big regrets, something a bit, or, or something that you'd like to have a do-over? Ooh, okay. This is also emotional. <laughs> I know exactly what this one is because um, it, it, it's kind of an undercurrent in my life. It continues to influence my decisions and how I interact in relationships today. But um when I was going through treatment, um, I made a really good friend, um, who was also, um, a survivor. Um, her name was Brittany and, um, we connected like we, you know, this intense shared experience that we had was a real bonding experience. And we were part of a group together that, um, uh, with an organization that brought teens and young adults with cancer together to do art. And we would share our stories that way with each other. And, um, we were really close and, um, her cancer came back and, um, it was her second recurrence. And I was really busy with school and starting college and like all of the things going on in my life. And I would see her occasionally, but she was also kind of really private when she, um, wasn't feeling well. 
and one day her, um, her dad called me and she, I knew she had been admitted to the hospital and, um, he said, you should come you should come now. And so my mom and I got in a car and we drove to Lucille Packard children's hospital. And, um, I showed up on the floor and asked, where's Brittany? And she had died 15 minutes before I got there. And this idea that we should never wait to show up for people that we love and tell them how much we love them because we never have tomorrow promised. And that gets reinforced every day in the hospital. We, I mean, work with a patient and expect to, oh, tomorrow I'll bring you that thing or do that thing or whatever. And then the next day they're gone um, or they're not feeling well or like things can change so quickly and we don't have as much control as we think. We don't know as much as we think. Um, so that biggest regret has um, definitely fueled a lot of how I live my life now. Wow. Or try to. I'm not yeah. perfect. <laughs> so... One more question. Hopefully I won't make you cry with this one. Um, who inspires you? Oh gosh. So many people, so many people inspire me. Mm. Uh, I, I joke that it takes, you know, I, I'm kind of in front of my organization and am out talking about it in the face and all the things, but <laughs> what people don't see is there's like dozens of people behind me, <laughs> like helping to prop me up and like, listen to me when I'm crying and <laughs> all the things it takes a lot to keep me going. Um, and I, gosh, I'm inspired by my husband. He is, how do I describe it? He is the most emotionally intelligent person I think I've ever met. Um, but when you meet him, he's kind of just like this goofy, silly guy and that everyone kind of connects with and likes, and you wouldn't necessarily know that there is that depth there unless you really get to know him. Um, but there's this also sense of, um, self-sacrifice and service that he, he commits to every day for the people that he loves. And he shows up when people are dealing with hard things. He, he picks up the slack when, um, when I'm busy and can't, he takes care of our, our son. And, um, he, he inspires me every day, his love for me and for his family. It inspires me every day. And it's, it's really the foundation, nothing that heart scene art would not exist without, without my husband's love for me. That's great. So to, to close it out here, um, can you tell my listeners or give them some insight into ways they can help? Are there, you know, where, where can they go learn more? What can they mm. do to help? 
Sure. So a great place to start is to go to our website, heartsneedart.org. We're based in San Antonio, but we're now serving people all over the country, um, particularly healthcare staff right now. Um, burnout is super high. We're almost two years into the pandemic and there is a severe healthcare worker shortage that is really kind of our next healthcare crisis and they need our support. Um, we have a program called our gratitude grams program where healthcare workers can enroll on our website and they get regular emails from our artists, musicians, writers, um, with a little, uh, song or inspiring quotes or pro or like little art prompts that they can do with like a pen and a pe paper. But we we pair those with messages of thanks and gratitude from people in the community. So you can actually go to our website and write a letter to healthcare worker, and we'll pass that along. And that's a way that you can tangibly get involved. Um, but then also, um, if you have the financial means to support that, we one of our core a core part of our mission is providing meaningful work opportunities for artists, which artists have been like their whole, um, uh, all of their economic opportunities were completely blown up over the, during the pandemic. And we were the only paycheck for many of them for a, a significant period of time. And the only way we were able to do that is because of people that, um, that support us financially and support us each month. You can actually support, you can go through our artists and actually pick one to support and you get mess, you get stories each month of, um, impact that they've made in the hospital because of your support. Um, so if you like feeling connected to this kind of work, those are two ways that you can do it. Um, but then also just very practically in your own life, um, a challenge that I would give you is that we give challenge that we give to our artists, um, is learn to hold space for yourself and your own pain so that you can more effectively hold space for others in their pain without judgment and without trying to change them. Um, cause I think if more of us were able to do that, we would have a much more loving and compassionate world. Thank you so much. I appreciate you. Oh, in our me. podcast. Oh my gosh. Oh, yeah. I'm sorry. No, <laughs> my, go for it. My staff would be really mad. So if you don't mention your podcast it. on a podcast, that's like it's that's too like obvious. What I'm to do, right? <laughs> if you're interested in like learning how the arts benefit our health and stories of people who have used it to transform their lives, research doc researchers, doctors, amazing stories. Um, you can check out our podcast, Arts for the Health of It. We're on all the platforms, um, but we, I think it's very entertaining and educational. So, um, and that's what we're told it is too. So it's not just me, um, but arts for the health of it. You can check out our podcast. Great. Thank you. I'm glad you remembered that piece at the end. <laughs> glad I did too. And you proved what a bad host I am for not My co-host would be really mad at me. Well, and a bad host it. at this end for not prompting you for it either. So we'll all, we'll, We'll equally share the blame. So thank you so much for, for joining me. Really appreciate it. Wonderful to meet you. I'm so impressed and inspired by what it is that you're doing to help people and um, keep it up. Thank you. Thanks. Honored to be here. Thank Thanks. you. Thanks for listening to today's episode of The Narrative. Your feedback is always welcomed, as are your shares and, of course, your reviews. Please subscribe and review The Narrative on your podcast platform of choice including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, 
and Google Podcasts. 